You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. Today is February 4th, 2024, and this is episode 263 of Lighthearted. My very special co-host today is the executive director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and Doggy Daddy to Augie Doggy, Jeff Gales. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Augie's right by my side, by the way, sleeping, helping as he usually is. Yeah. Some of our listeners might uh, have seen Augie. I think he's shown up in one or two of our Zoom events in the past. Yeah. Well, every time I put a photo on our news or uh, bulletins, uh, if I write a column, I use my picture of me is always with Augie, of course. Yeah. And for anybody who might not know, it's hard to believe they wouldn't, but uh, Augie is a, uh, a Boston Terrier. And of course, he's named for Augustin Fresnel, inventor of the, right. the Fresnel lens. And when he has his trouble, own... when he gets in trouble, I call him Augustin. And he has an Instagram account, right? Yes, he has a very popular Instagram account. Believe it. How or do not. people find that? Uh, just go to Instagram and type in Augie dot dog. <laughs> Augie dot dog. That's A U G I. Augie A U G I dot dog. Okay, got it. All right, so. Uh, Back to business. In a few minutes, we'll listen to a conversation about Muckle T.O. Lighthouse in Washington. For anyone who doesn't know, the U.S. Lighthouse Society's headquarters is also in Washington at the Point No Point Light Station in Hansville. Uh, So how's the uh, winter going in the great Pacific Northwest, Jeff? It's good. It's actually been a really mild winter. We had some flooding in December. Uh, Luckily, the lighthouse property, the buildings, historic buildings didn't get affected uh, so much, but the community around the lighthouse was severely impacted. The lighthouse parking lot's been closed for a long time, for many months now, while the county goes in and tries to rebuild things and rebuild the beach and rebuild the uh, infrastructure of the parking lot because it was undermined by so much water. Yeah, uh, We've enjoyed a relatively quiet time out at the headquarters. But we're hoping that uh, by this summer, uh, when lots of tourists come, that uh, the place will be opened back up. But I'm not sure it's going to be. It may take the Coast Guard and the county a little bit longer than this year to to get things back to back to where they can park. People yeah. can still access the site, but no cars are allowed on the site. So. Yeah. Yeah. I stayed there last April and I was uh, kind of surprised to see as many people walking in as there were quite a few. Yeah. But not like I know, not like it was when they're driving in. It's a popular place. And, you know, we get so much traffic, especially in the summertime. The weight of that traffic could be dangerous if the engineers don't figure out what's going on underneath that parking lot. So anyways, that's what we're waiting for now. Uh, but yeah. it is really nice not to have all of the cars out there. It's it's a nice and quiet for us. We can yeah. have a chance to concentrate on important lighthouse preservation business instead of dealing with a bunch of tourists. So that's good. Speaking of uh, lighthouse business, I'll be flying out there in March uh, for a few days. The society is having a, a in-person board meeting uh, at that time. And uh, I was uh, thinking about it. I think this will be my fifth visit out there. First one was in, in 2015 and um, as recently as last year. Always have a great time there. So I'm assuming you have plenty of fun plans for us uh, while uh, we're all there, and it, along with the meetings. No, no, no. You, there's no? no you're all going to work the whole time you're here. Oh, geez. <laughs> no, we'll have some fun, but it will be a mix of work and pleasure. All right. I, that sounds better. You scared yeah. me for a moment there. 
So as I mentioned before, today's main subject is Muckleteo Lighthouse. I had a nice visit there back in 2015 when I was, uh, I actually drove all the way from San Diego to Seattle on that trip and then went up to British Columbia. I was working on a West Coast Lighthouse book. So I visited Muckleteo then. It's it's kind of a neighbor of yours, a point no point, but it, it takes a little doing to to get there. You got to drive around, take a ferry, right? Uh, it's not. It's a it, yeah. I mean, it's it's as a crow flies, it's close, but to get there, unfortunately, it it's a little bit of a uh, a challenge with either driving a long way around the peninsula or, or taking some ferries. Yeah, Muckleteo is a great little lighthouse. Um, uh, one of my favorite, actually, in Washington State. I think it's one of the most beautiful. It, it it's has the most you know gingerbready architectural detail details of any lighthouse in Puget Sound, and they also have uh, they were able to bring back their fourth order Fresnel lens and they are using currently using that as a navigational aid. So it's one of the few in uh, Washington State to actually be using their original lens, which is awesome. Yeah, but, uh, and the group uh, that takes care of the lighthouse does an amazing job. It's a beautiful lighthouse. Um, they have a great little shop inside, and I believe it's open to the public pretty much all summer. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I believe it's open uh, weekends and, and holidays from uh, like uh, spring to September, and they have a big lighthouse festival as well in September. Yeah, and it's actually, if you're doing a tour of uh, Puget Sound Lighthouses, you want to see multiple ones, it's a great one to go visit because it's right there by the Muckleteal Ferry Terminal. It takes you to Whidbey Island where you can go see Admiralty Head Lighthouse, and then of course take another ferry over to Port Townsend for Point Wilson. So it's kind of along that route of Puget Sound lighthouses. And um, the town of Muckleteal is a beautiful little town too. Great restaurants and things to do. It's a uh, one of my favorite lighthouses in Puget Sound. So let's go ahead and introduce today's interview. Uh, please help me out, Jeff. Sure, Jeremy. The local Snohomish Indians uh, knew a small point of land on the east side of Washington's Puget Sound as Muckleteo, which is said to mean good camping ground. The area grew as a port in the late 1800s with salmon canning and lumber as leading industries. Funds were appropriated by Congress for the lighthouse at Muckleteo in 1903 and construction began in 1905. And I did have to look up those dates. I did not have them memorized. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a script or anything though. Never. <laughs> uh, while most lighthouses were being built of iron, concrete, or brick at the time, this one was constructed of wood. A 30-foot tower was built attached to a fog signal building with two large separate dwellings for the keepers and their families. A fourth order Fresnel lens was installed in the lantern and equipment was installed for a powerful fog trumpet powered by compressed air. The station began service on March 1st, 1906 with a white flash every five seconds. The light and fog signal were automated in 1979 and the Coast Guard leased the station to the city of Muckleteo in 1991. And the city became the official owner of the light station property in 2001. In the following year, adjacent Muckleteo State Park also became city property, and the combined properties were renamed Muckleteo Lighthouse Park. Yeah, uh, the Muckleteo Historical Society manages the light station. The grounds are open all year, while the lighthouse is typically open on weekends and holidays from the end of April to the end of September. Right. We have two guests today. Joanne Malloy is the president of the Muckleteo Historical Society, and Jerry Arnold is on the Society's Board of Directors. 
Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed talking with both of them just a few days ago. So let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with two guests. We have uh, Joanne Malloy, who is the president of the Muckleteo Historical Society, and Jerry Arnold is uh, on the Society's Board of Directors. And our main topic for today is going to be the Muckleteo Lighthouse, which the Historical Society cares for. So thank you so much for being with me today, Joanne and Jerry. I appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'd like to start uh, with a question about your personal backgrounds. Uh, and either one of you can take this first. You can fight amongst yourselves. But how did each of you get involved with the Muckleteo Historical Society and the Lighthouse? Well, I, a friend of mine wanted to know if I wanted to volunteer at the Lighthouse. And I said, no. And she said, there's a meeting. Can you go to the meeting with me? And she pleaded with me. And I'm like, okay, just to get her <laughs> off my back. And here I am. <laughs> <laughs> how many years ago I, was that? Uh that was probably 2013, and I initially got involved in the gardening um, and took that on, eventually became the chair of the gardening team, and then somehow started to get involved in the board, and then they needed a president at some point, and I said, okay, I'll try, so. She's done well. Yeah. That was, I've been president for eight years now. Great. How about you, Jerry? Well, I was retired and a friend of mine I worked with asked me if I had any time to maybe help with preservation studies at the lighthouse. So I said, yeah, I think I could do that. And so I met Joanne and uh, got involved in helping them do humidity studies, uh, find, trying to find ways to improve the, reduce the humidity. And then Joanne one day said, hey, would you like to be on the board? I said, yeah, I think I could do that. So, so kind of here I am. And that was, it started about 2017 for me. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, do I understand correctly that the, the lighthouse is actually owned by the city of Mukilteo and managed by the historical society? Is that how it works? The property is owned by the city. It was gifted to them in 2001. And um, the, but the, we have artifacts and we have the foghorn and the, um, we also have a vessel traffic net network antenna, and the lands all belong still to the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it is still an active aid to navigation maintained by the Coast Guard, right? That's, that's the interesting thing. When you visit there, you're actually visiting a city property with an active Coast Guard facility. Yeah. So uh, the Historical Society does other things besides manage the lighthouse. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. We've got... Um, an archive of photographs and documents from early settlers in the area uh, goes back to the 1860s when the first European settlements were here. Some of that's available online. It's been put into a database. And if somebody wants to order a picture or something like that, they can do that. Or they can do what I do often is the screenshot and that's maybe good enough. <laughs> <laughs> A little trick there. Um, so that's on the Muckleteo Historical Society website. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, we have the photo library. It's not all the photos we have, but it's 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 getting bigger and bigger. And we have a pretty incredible archive team that did amazing work throughout the pandemic that I never thought that we would ever accomplish. But people were bored, and they knew they felt safe coming in and doing the work. So. Yeah they were able to catalog a lot of things. We also do special tours for seniors and 
school kids. And we did some last year where it was the kids first um, field trip ever, but they actually helped me a lot with my interpretive skills because they asked questions that nobody had ever asked me before. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, and I had to go back and research it. So we also uh, staff weddings uh, that the community center sets up because a lot of people want to be married down in the lighthouse park. And we, well, they're like the essay contest. We have a lot of other things that we do. We're really involved in community events. And we also work on the Pioneer Cemetery. We clean that annually. And then we have a big Memorial Day ceremony that we plan and do, uh, which is a big thing to add on to what we're already doing. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. So what what is the website for the Historical Society? It's um, muckleteohistorical.org. Okay. I don't know if people can spell muckleteo, but it's M-U-K-I-L-T-E-O historical.org for the website. Let's talk about the name a little bit. Speaking of Muckleteo, uh, I think we said a little bit about it in the introduction, but where does the name Muckleteo come from? It's an old name. It's originally an Indian word, as you as you know, and it's it's researching it. It's thought to have a couple different meanings. In fact, the meaning is considered to be ambiguous by the Native people. It's referred to as a good place to camp, is referred to as the neck of the goose because the land used to be a spit sticking out. And then it's it could also be a narrow waterway, which I didn't know until I started researching more. But that's got, you know, uh, a long history with the native population. Uh, it's the low shoot, low shoot seed Indians who inhabited the area. And then the name changed. Well, it didn't change. The Europeans came along Captain Vancouver's expedition in 1792, his people named it Rose Point. There are numerous wild roses growing in the area around the point there. Then in uh, 1842, an American expedition came through and they named it Point Elliot after one of the midshipmen in the expedition. Hmm. Then in 1862 or thereabouts, the town founder, J.D. Fowler, uh, he had set up a saloon and a general store down here by the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure he did a rousing business with both of those, but he uh, he named it Muckle Teal. He went back mm-hmm. to the native word, the native name. So that's yeah. stuff we know about the history of, of it. Yeah, that's a good rundown on it. I'm sure you get a lot of variation. You hear a lot of variations on the pronunciation. <laughs> I have no oh, doubt. Yeah. You can always tell when somebody's not from the area and they're struggling with mo. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminds me of uh, I'm here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and we have the Piscataqua River near where I live, which is basically uh, yes. you know Portsmouth Harbor is on the the uh, inside the mouth of the Piscataqua River, and that gets a lot of interesting pronunciations. <laughs> and there's also a lot of debate over the exact uh, original native uh, meaning of that that word. We'll get a lot of variations on it. So, uh, sort of a similar situation here. There so, were a lot of parties there, gatherings um, in that area, and then there was also there's also midden still there, and that's why anytime we have to dig for anything or it requires an archaeology consult with the state, so that's why we don't have fiber optics, that kind of thing. 
So let's uh, go back in time a bit while well, you we just already did go back in time about the origin of the name. But let's talk about the early history of the lighthouse. First of all, why was a, a lighthouse needed at Mukilteo uh, in the early 1900s? Yeah, it was pretty interesting time. There was a lot of lumbering going on. The old growth forest that were being uh, cut by the European settlers and uh, ships were coming from all over the Pacific to pick up lumber here. And the economic interest uh, from the city of Everett and the mills decided that it, they wanted to help the navigation, uh, the navigators of these ships know when to make the turn around Whidbey Island to proceed north. The light has a range of 12 miles on a nominal 10 mile day if you're 20 feet off the water. So this pulse, one every five seconds, uh, would signal the navigators and the, the ship's crew when they would turn north at the south end of Whidbey Island to proceed up the channel to come to the 30-some-odd mills that populated the shoreline to pick up wood products. And that's that's what led to it. Um, I think it was authorized, what, 1903 by Congress and began, they built it in 1905 and then began operation 1906 on March 1st, if I remember right. And both of, both of the houses were built at the same the same time because they wanted to have a place. I always wondered if those came later or whatever, and they were built at the same time. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and the ships, the ships came literally from all over the world. Uh, one of the fun things about staffing the lighthouses of Dosen is you get to talk to visitors and there's visitors from everywhere. And I spoke with a man from South America who told me the story that if a house down there was built with Northwest lumber, it was considered a sign of quality. And in those early years when they were exporting like that, that would have been clear dug fir, old growth, really sturdy stuff. We also had a member whose brother, was it his brother? I think it was his brother, married a woman from Santiago, Chile. Mm -hmm. And the brother had gone down and was helping remodel the house and uh, they found lumber in the wall off the kitchen labeled Everett Washington. Wow, neat. Let me ask you uh, about the architecture of the lighthouse. Uh, it, I know there are some similar looking lighthouses, but what is uh, interesting or notable about the architecture of the lighthouse? Well, it, the architect was Carl Like, and he also did Admiralty and a few others. And uh, our lighthouse is really a different because it's a Victorian wooden structure. It's also very short. A lot of people climb the stairs and they go, this is so tall. I'm like, really? <laughs> Have you been to any lighthouses? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and now I think that's really cool because they only needed the fourth order lens and the, the short lighthouse to get out 12 miles. It was really efficient and they didn't make it any taller than they needed to, you know? Um, yeah. And it, it's all wood construction on the site. I'm not sure what the original roofing tiles were. I don't know because we had some really heavy clay tiles. Yeah. Um, they they weighed about 10 pounds a piece. And the last time we had the roof replaced, which was fairly recently, we couldn't believe that. But but everybody in the community believes that that is original. It was probably gray roof, but the whole community believes that there's a certain Coast Guard red tile roof that that's needed to and so anytime there's any change to the roof they go out to the community and make sure everybody's involved because there was this huge outpouring of people being upset because the color was wrong and 
I find that so funny because it's not historical at all. So. Yeah. Well, the Coast Guard did have a lot of red roofs in their era, but uh, it depends on which era you're you're talking about going back to. Uh, and certainly, probably from most of its history, it had a didn't have the red roof, right? Right. Uh, we don't know what it was. It was probably built to some, you know, the paint and stuff like that was probably done to some federal spec that accompanied the architectural drawings. And uh, that that could be an interesting thing to research. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the human history a little bit. I was reading about the station's first keeper, Peter Christensen. Uh, yeah. He uh, was kind of an interesting character. Can you tell me a bit about him? Yeah, it was kind of funny. Last summer, um, his great-granddaughter came in and was talking about him and I was correcting her family history because she she was like, oh, I thought it went this way. And I go, no, <laughs> because I've heard this story so many times. But uh, so he was up at Turnpoint in Stewart Island with another keeper and a boat came up there, a ship. Um, there was also a tug involved. There's a, a really a new description that I haven't read in one of Jim um, Gibbs's books that was written in the 50s. And I always felt like maybe that was more accurate because it hasn't, you know, was closer to the time that it happened. Uh, but anyway, I guess they got a crew from one of the bars and they kept drinking on the, all the way up there. And then it went aground, but the Jim Gibbs description talks more about the sailors being on the tug. Um, they were not experienced at all. There was a big storm and Peter Christensen went out and with the other keeper and they they saved them all. And I think they stayed there for a couple of days, even he, you know, he took them in and fed them, kept them, got them warm, warmed them up and everything. As a reward, he got the gig at Mukilteo, which was kind of a big deal if he was on a remote island to, to be able to, to do that. Because at the time, I'm sure Stuart was only available by it's, boat. It's as I like to tell visitors, it was a reward for his service in rescuing the mariners who were shipwrecked in the San Juans when they were inebriated. And how often would a lighthouse keeper be able to take his wife to dinner down the street instead of waiting three months for the shipment that's late <laughs> for food? Or, and that, that's what really made it remarkable for him. Or even, you know, the whole idea, and I get this from listening to your podcast, but um, just how remote these places were and how, you know, just to go to the store or go buy an ice cream or what, whatever, whatever it was, they were, they were so limited. Your kids and, could go to school. There was a yeah, school up the road. Yeah, a sense yeah. of community. And so uh, the other interesting fact about Peter Christensen is he died on the job while he was shoveling coal, I guess, is the story I, I heard. And he they think he had a heart attack. Um, and, you know, so many lighthouses have spooky stories and we don't have any. I mean, that's a spooky. Well, I, guess. I, I perhaps embellish it a little bit. I like to tell visitors <laughs> that the first lighthouse keeper died here on the job. And you watch people's eyes, you know, <laughs> open up and say, yep, he was shoveling coal, didn't feel well, went upstairs to his quarters building and died in bed. Should find out what really, really happened, but it's got to be close to that. Yeah. Let that be a warning to those of us in the Northeast when it's, we get heavy snow. Uh, those of us uh, past a certain age probably shouldn't uh, overdo the shoveling because uh, it can be Bigger dangerous. Stories, right? Yeah. 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 And what you just said, by the way, Joanne, it reminded me of uh, the old phrase in the French lighthouse service they've traditionally used, en faire et paradis, hell and heaven. 
the two extremes of lighthouse life. You know, had you have the on fair or hell stations, which would be out on a rock or a little island way offshore. Whereas you said there were, you know, it was a very different way of life from the ones on the mainland. Uh, so, uh, you know, all lighthouse keeping wasn't the same by any means. Exactly. But how big a community was Muckleteo by the early 1900s? Four to five thousand at the most. Yeah. Because, you know, the original community was a small area down at the bottom of the hill, just above where the lighthouse is. And it's referred to as Old Town. The, the people who were here were attracted by the, the work for lumber. There was no mining that I know of in the area. Later on, that they established other businesses in the area. There was a gunpowder manufacturing center uh, or complex up one of a couple miles up the coast, up one of the canyons. And that's, that's a whole story on its own. Hmm. Wow. Absolutely. I imagine it could be exciting and not such a good way. If uh, yes, anything, it, anything it was, it, it did blow up. Oh, wow. <laughs> 1930s was it? It caused quite a bit of damage in the entire area, but mostly broken windows. Could have been worse <laughs> from the sounds of it. It's been a lot worse. They actually had warning because the people who were working there, noticed that some, there was a fire and they couldn't put it out. And they were able to get away from there and warn people. They actually moved some of the explosives away from where the fire was and they had a little more time to warn people. So those people were heroes in, in a way. Yeah. I'd say so. So before we move on, anything else that stands out for you regarding the human history of the place, stories of keepers and families there, that kind of thing? Well, we have an exhibit that's a timeline of the, um, it's just a room with a timeline with photos of the uh, different keepers and their families. It's limited, but we also have um, up above what was going on in the world at the time, you know, or the country and that sort of thing. And um, what was going on in Muckleteo. People come in to this day and several times a year, they'll come in and they'll go, oh, that's my grandma or whatever. And we were actually talking about revising the exhibit and I said let's keep it because there's so many people that are related to the keepers and mm -hmm. they come in and they tell us stories and you know I wish we did a better job of documenting that and, and getting their names and that sort of thing uh, I think it would make a great book the families are still around that's the thing that's so amazing is you you run into people who are visiting there and they they tell you that you know their personal history is and how they're related to somebody who's a keeper there and we do have one of uh, Peter Christensen's relatives as one of our members. He's out of state. It's all it's all pieces of the puzzle. Any little bits of information you can get from these people, it's it's gold. It's treasure mm -hmm. when you find, uh, mm -hmm. even if it's one photo or one little anecdote or whatever it is. I know how how great it is to find that to make connections with these people. Yeah. yeah. One of the yeah. things we have is a display in the lighthouse of old photos, and they were very excited to see it because. They could point to one of the the boys and say, "Well, that's a great grandfather." Mm, that's that's wonderful. So, uh, jumping ahead in history a little bit, the uh, station was converted to electricity in 1927, and I know the Fresnel lens was changed at that time. So, there is an active Fresnel lens in the lighthouse today, right? Uh, is that the one that was installed in 1927? Yes. Yes, and that's uh, been active ever since then, and um, it was built in Paris in 1852. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty cool thing that it's still going. We did have an LED uh, retrofit a couple of years ago by the Coast Guard, and we felt really lucky because we were having a hard time getting um, bulbs 
for the halogen. And um, the Coast Guard decided that we were worthy to, to do the retrofit. So it's a really weird juxtaposition of like, we've got this antique 1852 lens. And then in the middle, you've got this state-of-the-art LED light. It's, yep. it's really odd. But we're lucky because it said that it'll work for eight to 10 more years. It's really interesting to look at what happened to the lens in the lighthouse over the years, because the original was coal oil for the light and a revolving lens producing the pulse every five seconds. Well, when they went to electricity, you can imagine trying to get wires around a revolving lens. So they took that out, put a stationary one in. And it's this 1852 relic, and we have no idea where it came from, what its history is. Right. We've tried to research it um, because we we originally had the, you know, the rotating lens. Where did it go, and where did ours come from? We've been working on it, and I've actually had some discussions with Chad Kaiser on it, and um, we're gonna we're researching it, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. I recently read that we switched out with New Dungeness. Um, which if if Chad's asking, I don't necessarily believe that that's true or that it's been, you know, verified. Right. For people who don't know, Chad Kaiser is actually the manager of New Dungeness Lighthouse in Washington and a lampist. And is yeah. an expert on Fresnel lenses, one of the leading uh, experts, certainly. He's a great uh, resource for us. He is. He's a he's a great resource for for us too. U.S. Lighthouse Society used to work <laughs> for the society. Um, as far as uh, the story of your lens, it's very similar to our story here at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, where there's a lens we know was installed sometime after 1935. Apparently, there was damage to the previous Fresnel lens. But it's it's an it's a 19th century lens that we don't know where it came from, so it's probably somewhere else, but we have no idea where. And also, we have an LED inside our fourth order Fresnel lens at Portsmouth Harbor Light. I think they did a lot of them around the same time. This is all developed in the last couple of years. It's kind of neat to have, like you said, it's like a a blending of the old and new technology. We have these beautiful old 19th century lenses with these space age weird-looking lights, but very efficient lights uh, inside them, yeah. And they're going to last another eight, ten years. Mm-hmm. They kind of run themselves, which is nice yeah. for the Coast Guard. Because we're right next to the ferry, uh, I think that that gave us kind of an edge on being one of the people to get the LED light. Yeah, the story I heard was one of the reasons the Coast Guard flipped on doing the retrofit was that uh, the Washington State Ferry Service actually wrote a letter to the Coast Guard and told them that it helped orientate the vessels during transit. I'm glad you mentioned the ferry terminal right next to the lighthouse. When I was there, I, I didn't I don't think I knew about that before. I was there in 2015. If I remember right, it was hard to find parking. It was pretty pretty crowded there, but I think a lot of it was for the ferry. Probably the parking situation isn't any better, but they've recently moved the ferry terminal built a new one and it's it's won several design awards quite a few actually it's beautiful and um and they've moved it farther north and right. so it's kind of and then the place where the ferry dock was is a little mini park oh they call it parklet um that's where people can eat you know fish and chips or whatever and they're they're looking the city's looking at redoing the waterfront a bit but it mm. it's a really lovely i would recommend anyone go tour it because it's it's absolutely stunning oh okay i wasn't aware of that a parklet you said i never heard the word parklet before me either yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it mean i think you can envision a 
postage stamp park. Yeah, a baby park, a yeah. parklet. Yeah. Well, that's neat. I'm really glad to hear about that. Uh, it makes life different for you with the for people working at the lighthouse, of course. We thought it would reduce the amount of visitors we get, but it ha we have not noticed any any decline from that. Mm -hmm. Do you know approximately how many people you get at the lighthouse? Um, last year was seventeen thousand. Well, it was pretty busy the day I was there in 2015, and on summer weekend days, nice days, it must get really busy. Yeah, we yeah. we could have you know we had a four hundred people go through there in three hours. It's great. It's a lot. Yeah, that is that is definitely a lot. So going back to uh, the Fresnel lenses, uh, you of course you have a museum at the lighthouse, and there's another Fresnel lens on display in the museum. Is that right? Yeah, that's another funny story. Um, we had a member who got a call from a. This is maybe a bit of lore, but this is the story that I was told. Got a call from a antique shop in Pioneer Square in Seattle and said that they had, there was this guy who wanted to sell this lens. So she went down and uh, was a little beat up, but um, she bought it. And the serial number has been stripped uh, for many years. It was believed that it was uh, part of Desdemona Sands, which is now um, no longer around. Um, but I uh, worked with Chad. Well, Chad did the work um, and we debunked that completely. Um, what we're doing is trying to find a photo of a lighthouse that would, because it's a fourth order like ours, but it has a different pattern. So it's actually really nice to have that in the uh, downstairs so that you can show it to people without the light shining in their eyes so they can actually see what it looks like. Yeah, it's and, it's got three panels, a bullseye with three panels in it. And mm -hmm. so I explained to people it would be rotating and create a three pulse signal uh, on some duration. And we just don't know where it came from or. No, we're, I'm not giving up on it though. I mean, we have some, we have some ideas and I think there were a lot of lighthouses that were kind of abandoned back in that era. And um, I think it was in the seventies and we're fortunate that we have that and, you know, we can use it as a tool to teach people and, it was pretty beat up and we had, we hired Chad to clean it up a few years back when he cleaned our lens and um, there was a lot of glue on it and it's a pretty cool thing to have. Oh, it sure is. They're the jewels of the lighthouse. They're always, uh, you know, they, I know people are always impressed to, to see those. They're so beautiful. So let's talk a bit, a little bit more about public access there. When is the lighthouse open? You know, we're open April to, through September, and because mm -hmm. we have the Lighthouse Festival in September, I think that's why that's just been the tradition. Um, the first weekend in April through the last weekend day in September. Last year was the first year we were open since the pandemic. We weren't open in April, but we made it happen, and we were open one to four. We may expand those hours. It doesn't matter how often we're open. People perceive that we're never open. So. Mm -hmm. We, you know, those, those Saturdays and Sundays, um, we keep them staffed. It takes four, four people minimum. Four to five. Yeah. Four to five. And, you, you know, you, you run out of volunteers after a while. It's staffed entirely by volunteers. Is that right? Yeah. So it would be two people in the gift shop, two people in the one in the tower, one in the down below. And. I think it's nice. We used to do a break person, but I think it's nice to have someone as a lead to kind of solve problems during the shift, fill in and that sort of thing. But yeah. 
So you just mentioned the gift shop. I was looking yes. at your website and there's some pictures from the gift shop. And I remember when I was there, uh, it says on the website that it's not your typical souvenir shop. So why is that? What makes it special? Well, I think it got more special over the pandemic because we had time and we took everything out and we painted and we refreshed everything and uh, we couldn't get orders because, you know, they couldn't ship them. And so they felt like if we couldn't get things in time, then they just would cancel our order. So we started working with local vendors, which saved on shipping because they'll just drop it by and meet us. And we kind of geared more towards like Mukilteo specific things. And that's what everybody wanted. And we have a lot of really fun apparel. Um, we don't have a lot of souvenir shops, um, places where you can get Mukilteo swag um, in the community. There's one other gift shop. So we just kind of switched things out and we really changed the way that we did things. So if you haven't been recently, it'd be good to come back and see because it's, it's really nice. Yeah. Mukilteo swag. I love that phrase. I think it's a good name for a band, maybe. Mukilteo <laughs> swag, yeah. Yeah. Do you have Mukilteo uh, Lighthouse baseball caps there? Yes. That I need to get back to get one of your you baseball do. caps because I collect them. Yeah, it gives me a more incentive to yeah. get back. The three different colors. We have blue, black, and green. Save well, me a blue. T-shirts. <laughs> those are very popular. Christmas decorations. Miniature toy fairies, having mentioned the fairy before. I really like the idea of us focusing on the local artist and the local suppliers for these things because it's it's part of supporting our community. And, yes. and the really fun thing that came out of it is a lot of these local people decided to become members. And so they come to our meetings and they're they're more, you know, instead of us going to order something from China or something. It's just a much more personal community collaboration. I like it. Yeah. 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 You mentioned, Joanne, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the Muckleteal Lighthouse Festival in September, right? It looks like that's a pretty big deal. Can you tell me a little bit about what happens with that? There's a lot of activities around. They have a, a, a race, run amok. They, the whole community gets involved. It's um, down at Lighthouse Park and they have vendors and the Kiwanis do a big salmon bake, which is the big hit of the, you know, not disparaging any other vendors, but that that is something that people go there for. And the Lighthouse Festival has been in existence for a long time. I, I can't tell you when it started, but it, it was smaller. It was smaller and it was an old town and then it just got bigger and bigger. They have a lot of kids activities. Uh, they have now a group of pirates that um, come in and they put up a flag at the lighthouse and they've uh, got a duck. They do a landing. Yeah. You know, the mm. amphibious vehicle duck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think they had mermaids last year. And then we're kind of like the introvert spot. We've kind of found our niche now, finally, but we have games. So when families are kind of overstimulated at the festival, they come over to the lighthouse grounds and we play games and the, you know, they sit on the grass and maybe have a snack or whatever. And, and I think that's a nice place for us to be. It, it's a lot of work. We have, uh, we had last year, I think we had two pretty long shifts on Saturday and it requires a lot of people volunteering mm -hmm. long hours. 
It wears you out, but it's fun. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It looks like a great time. When you mentioned the pirates being there a minute ago, I was almost going to ask if you had a uh, mermaid or mermaids as well. And you said you, you did. We had a couple of Fourth of July festivals at Portsmouth Harbor Light here a few years, a few years ago. And we had a, a group of pirates led by a guy who looked just like Jack Sparrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And we had a woman who uh, portrayed a, a mermaid and sat on the rocks with a little treasure chest full of uh, nice sea glass. And she was letting the children pick out the sea glass they wanted to take with them, pick out some treasure. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. Things like that add so much to a festival. Yeah. Nice. It sounds, sounds really good. So do you have other special events besides that? We used to make a big deal about the opening of the lighthouse. We used to have a big opening ceremony with uh you know, a musician and, you know, just make a big deal out of it, invite the mayor. And during the pandemic, we, you know, we just, we haven't gotten back to that. I don't know what we're going to do this year. And like I said, the Pioneer Cemetery Memorial Day, that's, that's probably our big, our big event. And then we do things specifically for the society to have at the, we have a big celebration at the end of the season. For the volunteers. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the Christmas party. And then in 2022, we did a, a big social outside because people still weren't comfortable, you know, inside. So we, we have a consulting board or advisory board of past um, board members, and they put on a big ice cream social for us, which was really fun. Sounds like it's a lot of perks to being a volunteer there. Yeah, we try. We, we try to make it fun. Yeah. Yeah. And try to fit people with their skills and interests versus putting them in a position that they really don't want. (laughs) I imagine you're always looking for new volunteers, as any uh, small nonprofit usually is. Yes, always. Yeah, we try to get the members to get more engaged, to become volunteers, and uh, find out what their skills are. And as you, you learn more about people, they be potentially become, you know, leaders of the organization as well. Mm-hmm. So it's an engagement exercise. Yeah. And, it, and it's not just docents and gift shop staff that we're looking for. We we have a lot of different roles that um, we need help with. The board took on so much during the pandemic and people, I kept asking for help through our newsletter and emails and that sort of thing. But it's it's picked up now that we're meeting in person because we can do that networking um, at the meetings and people can ask questions and, and that helps too. So, yeah. Well, you never know who might be listening. There might be somebody in your neck of the woods who's interested in volunteering. It's certainly possible. So anybody listening, if you're within a short drive or even a long drive of Teo, get in touch with, uh, with Joanne through the, through the website, right? There's must be contact info on the website. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Absolutely. So uh, speaking of your website, uh, it, you have a list of other attractions in your area, things people can see when they visit there. If someone's coming to Mukilteo and maybe has a day or maybe a couple of days, are there particular uh, destinations that you'd recommend uh, besides the lighthouse? Obviously, lighthouse is number one, but anything else? Absolutely. Uh, we're very fortunate to have a lot of aviation history in the area. Uh, up the hill is the Boeing plant that was built in 1967 for the original 747. It is the largest enclosed volume in the world. Wow. So you get inside there and there's there's literally five, six-story office complexes built between sections of the building. 
um, with thousands and thousands of people. I think the population there for people working is like 24,000 people. So it's a city into itself. Um, there are tours of that. So you go to the Boeing Tour Center and you, you can see the displays there and do a tour of the, the factory. There's also the, it used to be the Paul Allen Aircraft Collection, but it's now called the Flying Heritage and Combat Armor Museum up near Payne Field, which is the, the airport. And I, I personally think it's one of the finest collections in the country. It's mainly focused on up to about World War, the end of World War II. Uh, they have a couple of jet aircraft as well. They also have uh, some old armored vehicles that are just fascinating to see. The oldest one, I think, is, is a Japanese, the remains of a Japanese tank from World War II. The one that was just surprised the heck out of me was a tank that had been cut in half and the two halves separated. And you could stand between them and just study how this whole thing was built. It was it's an old one, obviously, but it was fascinating. And then I I like, you know, we mentioned the ferry. You could take the ferry across to Whidbey Island, and there's numerous things to do on Whidbey Island. Uh, Fort Casey and Admiralty Head Lighthouse, mm -hmm. a good place for the kids to run, and the lighthouse is... Uh, open uh, i don't know how frequently it's open but uh it's a it's a fun visit and from their tower you look out and you're looking down the straits of juan de fuca up towards the pacific mm -hmm. it's, it's a long way i don't know how many miles it is but it's a long ways out there you know uh but it's it's quite the view from up on the hill and in the tower there yeah yeah so those are those are my three favorite to tell people about um the, the Plains of Fame Air Museum, or rather the Flying Heritage Museum, like I said, I, I can't speak highly enough of that. It's it's We're lucky to have it in the community. And just being down at the lighthouse, you know, you can see a ferry, you can see planes, you know, because there's an airport nearby. You can see the train goes by, you know, there's so, there are boats, all sorts of boats and ships going by. You there's know. a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And I think for kids, like, they get so excited because they get to see all these things in one place. Mm -hmm. For me, too. Yeah. <laughs> and it, there's also some interesting hikes. There's Japanese Gulch. Uh, which was when the lumberyard was active here, the mill, uh, there were immigrants from Japan that settled in the area and they created their own little community in this area. Uh, it's referred to as Japanese Gulch. And then there's another nice hike up the road here. They call it Big Gulch. <laughs> and, and that goes on all the way on down uh, to the waterfront. Uh, the city's done a nice job turning that into a beautiful park. So for kids, that's a fantastic one. Yeah. Uh, it also has salmon during the uh, the salmon runs. Not too many, but there's some that come there. Mm -hmm. I think they're mostly lost, but they found <laughs> some water. Yeah. Well, speaking of salmon, I was going to ask you, I don't know if salmon, well, yeah, you have to consider salmon wildlife. Is there uh, other wildlife uh, worth noting? You, do, you get, do you see orcas uh, around there? Oh, yeah. The gray whales. I, I have never seen an orca. From there, I have up in the San Juans, but um, mm -hmm. we we were doing a tour and there we were up in the tower and a gray whale, we had heard about this gray whale that was sort of lingering long past the time to be there. And a gray whale came right 
next to the seawall. Wow. Very, very close. Um, it is so deep there. You know, that's why it was such a great shipping port because it's so deep. And one of the volunteers was downstairs and we yelled at her to come up and, and she's like, what I'm waiting for people. I said, I don't care. Get up here. <laughs> but she made it. And, uh, I think, uh, lots of seals we had lots when they were building the new ferry terminal, um, Washington state ferries had uh, marine biologists there checking to see that the marine life wasn't harmed. And, uh, they did it in three different waves, but if, they if they saw any marine life they would shut things down so that they wouldn't get hurt because there was a lot of creosote that was there um on some of the piers and so they counted and one of the biggest things was the seals and i've seen seals blowing bubbles on the beach um, which i had never seen before you can see fish jumping uh some sometimes there's also a lot of sea lions, a fair amount of sea lions get pretty lucky. Yeah, uh, there's signage telling people to stay away from these young seals because the what the parents do is they kind of beach them and leave them there, go hunt for a while, and come back to retrieve the youngling. It's not abandoned. It's not lost. Yeah. Leave it alone. Yeah. Stay away. And there yeah. are lots of organizations that are looking out for, for that. You know, there's the there's beach a group that does the yeah, beach watchers do a, a training for people um but yeah there's a lot of and a lot of birds oh my gosh um oh eagles yeah, yeah lots of eagles in the eagles area. herons um the herons there's it's just it's just seven eight sevens yeah oh sorry different bird <laughs> yeah Wow, that's great. Yeah, we have the same situation with seals here on the East Coast, uh, the babies coming up on the rocks and stuff, but we don't have sea lions here. And oh. I certainly saw a lot of sea lions when I was on the on the West Coast, and I heard a lot of sea lions on the West Coast. They get pretty noisy sometimes. But... They are. They're so big, they can be startling. Like one time there was, there was this couple that had this huge, they were from Cincinnati or something, and they, maybe Cleveland, I don't know, but they, they had this huge huge camera with the lens and and they were looking and they were so we really want to see a seal and i said well look and then all of a sudden a sea lion just kind of came out of the water and they they were really startled and they said oh that was a seal i'm like oh you got really lucky <laughs> so. yeah yeah right very unusual so another thing i saw on your website is that you have an essay contest can you tell me about that yeah that's open to high school students of either members or that we have two high schools in the area and uh, we've recently expanded it to Woodby Island. Um, we have a, we're, what we're trying to do is engage the younger generation in documenting our history. And so they write a, an article, an essay, and then the winner gets it published in their newsletter and also in the local newspaper. We have a small local newspaper that's been wonderful. We also, write articles when we've researched something and, and they publish it under the title Muck Revisited, which you can also find on our website. But uh, yeah, it's it, it's getting more and more popular. We're getting a little more, it's a little more competitive than it was when we first started, but we really wanted to just include the younger community. And we also had a couple of volunteers last year who were in seniors in high school and they were wonderful. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great on all counts. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. We need to find the people who are going to 
fill in for for us when we're not here. So. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I have one final question for both of you. And again, you can fight amongst yourselves as far as who's going to take it first. That question is, what do you enjoy most about your work related to the Muckleteo Lighthouse? I really like playing the role of the docent. When people are waiting to go upstairs, I'll, I'll give them my spiel, which is, hi, have you been to the lighthouse before? And, and is this your first visit? And give them some information. And then I like to just get quiet and let them talk a little bit, ask them if they have questions and kind of hear their stories. Uh, the story about the man from South America and the Northwest lumber being a sign of quality, that that came about there. There was a man from Cuba who told me about the old Spanish forts and lighthouses in Cuba. He was very enthusiastic about that as, as a tour uh, option. I think that to me is the funnest part of it is the people who come along and you have these incidental meetings, you know, the serendipity that happens where you cross paths and, and you share a little bit of your story with each other and the story of what you know about history. Yeah, it's very rewarding. I love showing off the lighthouse. <laughs> we work so hard and it's so nice to have people appreciate it and to, to, you know, ask questions and be curious. I also love the collaboration, you know, working with the Coast Guard and the city and with us, especially we're on this big preservation project um, this year. And I love the collaboration. We have to all work together. Um, we also have uh, lighthouse environmental programs that people have the lighthouse License, plate. license plates. They provide grants for lighthouse preservation, and um, they've actually asked us some really great questions and and actually helped us in our preservation efforts to become more organized and um, and so that's been really fun. And I always like learning. I I love to be a learner. I think that's what keeps us young. And very grateful to be able to learn so much. I had no idea how much there is to learn and how there's still so much I don't know. So yeah, one, one other thing that's really fun is um, we've had the tower open and people have been able to go up. They can see the lens. They scrout, if you crouch down and look up, you can see the LED emitter inside and the heat sinks and all that. And then we have the gallery deck open uh, and people just love that. The view up there is outstanding. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where you get to see the seals and the whales and the fish jump and the birds and the planes and it's it's a beautiful view but then you know they would come downstairs and and they usually have a big smile on their face and i always like seeing that people really enjoy that unfortunately we've had to close the gallery deck now uh it needs to be recoded and resurfaced uh, mm -hmm. just ongoing maintenance of this old lighthouse you know Yep. Yep. That's Girl. never done. Never yeah. done. Yeah. Rot never sleeps. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned climbing the lighthouse because obviously that's a big part of visiting there for any lighthouse. People are always thrilled to go up in the lighthouse. So uh, We're very fortunate. I know that not all lighthouses offer that. And we've been really, we, we try to follow all the rules of the Coast Guard and respect everything so that we can continue to keep it open. Yeah, I mean, we not only try, we actually do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no fingers on the Fresnel lens. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I've heard stories of uh, 
uh, some of the people who volunteer saying, well, there was this, this guy who visited, he went up and came down and he said, thank you for taking such good care of the lens, our, of our lens. He was from the Coast Guard. Like secret shoppers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Joanne Malloy and Jerry Arnold, I, I want to thank you so much. Uh, this is really interesting and it's great to get some of the the story behind the story of this lighthouse. As I said, I visited there in 2015 and really enjoyed it. It's a beautiful area. And I'm going to be out in Washington, by the way, in March to, to for a meeting of the U.S. Lighthouse Society at Point No Point in Hansville. Not sure oh, if wow. I'll make it over to you, but it's it's not outside of the realm of possibility. So I'll let it's you know if much. I if I'm able to to stop by. Uh, but this is this is just I know the lighthouse isn't open this time of year, of course. We would open it for you. So. Okay, well, <laughs> we've got keys. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But Joanne and Jerry, this is great, and I just thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Jeremy. You. you can learn more about Muckleteo Lighthouse and the Historical Society at muckleteohistorical.org. The history of the lighthouse is on the site as well as information about volunteering and donating to the project. I want to mention that we're planning one of our live virtual events on Zoom for Saturday, February 17th. The special guest presenter will be Dave Waller, a good friend of mine who's the owner of Graves Light in Boston Harbor. Dave has done a really amazing restoration of that lighthouse. It's one I know well, and it's really just miraculous what he's done there. We're also planning a virtual event related to the recent storm damage to lighthouses in Maine. So people on the USLHS email list should watch for more notice about that. As usual, society members can keep an eye on their uh, email uh, for news items that we send out for our bulletin, for uh, upcoming information about our preservation grants, which are being decided on right now. Uh, we have uh, several lighthouses in the country who are going to receive money for restoration and upcoming information on tours because we have lots of uh, interesting trips planned. And unfortunately, with the way tours go, things shift. So we're always having to put new information out there. So keep your eyes peeled for information on all those things on the Society website and through our newsfeed and ads that we send out by email. Definitely. Yeah. And I just want to quickly mention that I am co-leading a, a tour in Maine, the southern part of Maine and a bit of New Hampshire uh, early October coming up. So people can check that out on the website in the tours section. That Maine tour that you're going to be on was the second tour I ever took with the U.S. Lighthouse Society. And actually, you know, it goes starts in Portland and it ends in Portland. It's a big circle uh, in Portland, Maine, of course. And it's, in my opinion, one of the best tours that we offer. The lights in that part of Maine are absolutely gorgeous. I think the variety of uh, lighthouses you see architecturally are unique in that region too. You get a lot of bang for your buck on that tour in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, well, it's a group of lighthouses that's near and dear to me. It's uh, just up the road from me here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I know them. They're like uh, old friends. They're old friends, exactly. Intimately familiar with these lighthouses. For now, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Shine. This little light of mine, I'm 
Shine, let it shine.